Oh, that was more of a clunk than a clink. That's better. Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Hi, everybody. Mark Graben here. Welcome to Episode 9 of Lean Whiskey. We're here with Jamie Flinchball. Hey, Jamie. How's it going? Glad to be uh, glad to be back after an absence. Well, I think you you heard the episode. Um, are we going to do well, so episode eight with Crystal Totterman? You and I can do some chummy lean chat. Chummy lean. I, I think that was the first time I've used the word chummy in quite a while. So uh, we, we 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 can, but I don't know if we'll rename the podcast to Chummy Lean Chat. But no. Uh, and we're back to whiskey instead of instead of other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to have you back. It's good to have whiskey back. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, as, as fun as it was talking um, to Crystal. But um, so we're going to talk about whiskey and all kinds of other stuff. But first things first, we're recording this on Halloween night. Are, are you, is your doorbell ringing? Are you giving out candy? Well, I'm, I'm not actually in town, which uh, wasn't my original plan. But um, uh, so I'm traveling. Um, but, but where I live... Um, we get such little traffic. Uh, we don't even bother. Uh, we put a bowl out for people, uh, for the couple people that stop by and uh, the few kids that live in our area, we actually gather and all go around together uh, to our own houses. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> it, it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't follow a lot of the traditional uh, standards of trick-or-treating. So how about, how about yourself though? Well, so I, I'm actually home in Texas. My wife and I are both home, and uh, which, which is sometimes rare, but we're, we're both Quite here rare. and um, answering the doorbell when, when it rang. And um, I, think I, I don't think I was home last year, but one thing that we've done is um, giving away you know, sealed bags of you know, buy a bulk pack of microwave popcorn packs. Okay. And um, give those out just to mix it up from uh, candy. And um, usually kids really like it. Like, you know, kids will say, yay. Oh, it's popcorn. Oh, I love popcorn. And, you know, so um, we, we, we've done that, but this year there's this challenge of like forecasting. We don't want a ton of extra popcorn and no, you don't want to run out, but you know, so we had 60 bags of popcorn and we ran out about, 7.30 or so. And so we turn off the lights and I don't know if, you know, hopefully we won't get any tricks or pranks, but so, you know, we'd say for a uh, demand was higher than last year. And I, I don't know how we could have forecasted that. I guess we need safety stock. Yeah, it's, that's a tough one. I mean, you could always switch to giving out whiskey, but I think you get in trouble for that one. <laughs> we were, yeah. Uh, my wife was, she joked, we can't give out K cups. I don't think that's appropriate. Probably not. No, no. Uh, hot chocolate K cups, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I imagine the day of the week has a, has an impact. Um, you know, one more school night left and, yeah. and maybe more kids stay out longer and uh, who moves into the neighborhood and, uh, what routes they take. So it's, it, it is a, it is a tough one to forecast because every year the, the population of kids in the area changes, uh, at least yeah. their, their age profile. So 
Uh, so it, it brings to light um, forecasting challenges and um, all the different variables that go into a forecast. It's about 48 degrees, but it's not raining. So, you know, the kids are plus. cold, but at least it's, it's dry. But there was one other thing, um, and it was actually, it was a um, little kid, I know maybe, he must be maybe six years old, five, six years old, who's like directly across the street. And so we, we know the parents and, and they were there and rang the doorbell and it was actually the first kid of the night. And so I said, Oh, we have, you know, give us some popcorn to the little boy and, and to his sister. And then his face, it just started quivering. And he's like, well, I don't like popcorn. <laughs> oh, this is off to a great start. His well, mom, his mom and- was pleading with him. No, you do like popcorn, honey. I don't. Well, and if they were across the street, you know, you might have been the first house and, and, and so far he doesn't have any candy. So, you know, if if you already had a whole pile of candy and you were last, it's maybe, maybe uh, just rounding errors, but uh, (laughs) so far his collection involves popcorn and maybe that's not what he, what he wanted his whole set to look like. But so I mean, that's that's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talk about the voice of the customer, not all customers want the same thing in any setting. Right. No, you you know, you could stick a vending machine for free out front out on your front porch and everybody <laughs> picks what they want. Right. So um yeah, so that's uh Halloween this year. Um but we're we're gonna do a, this is, I guess a new segment. I know this might not be a recurring segment, but Jamie and I are gonna share some airplane stories because we're 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 not just uh knee deep and lean, but but we're we're traveling around a bunch, which creates some interesting situations, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it'll be a new segment because it usually they're depressing. Uh, <laughs> we we tend not to want to enjoy enjoy too many of our stories. And I I'm on the the tail end of a really a long three weeks, uh, but uh, I just got back from a, a, a trip over two weeks, which was uh, Newark to to Detroit, uh, to Beijing, to Singapore to Amsterdam, to Detroit, to Lexington, to Atlanta, back to Newark. Uh, and, I, and I never do this, but for some reason I calculated uh, 60 hours in a plane over those two weeks. And then when I count this week, it's an, it, it gets it up to 77 hours over and, and, three and weeks. So the, 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 the detail-oriented industrial engineer in me wants to know, is that time on the plane or time in the air? Yeah, so, I, so, so this that when I started sitting down to calculate it, I – I, I calculated time on the plane because, yeah. um, uh, you know, sometimes two hour delay and it's, that's the worst two hours of your entire time on the yeah. plane. Um, but, but just a, a couple of observations from this one uh, with a lot of flights. Uh, I've always found this to be the weirdest thing that any airline does. Um, but, but KLM gives out these, these porcelain houses uh, when you, when you fly in their, their business class and, you know, they come around with a little tray and they have all these different models. And I think in their whole set, they have, they have a wide variety of little, little Dutch houses in, in, in this porcelain. And uh, they present the tray to you and you're supposed to take, take one of the houses. And, and, and I know some people collect these things. I haven't really looked at what they're. I, I, I just Googled this and like people sell them on eBay and there's a whole thing about them. Yeah, there's a whole collector community and, and you go to the Amsterdam airport, you, you go up the escalator to the club and it's just a wall full of these things. Um, 
but I've just, I, I've just, you know, unless you're flying it so regularly that you do collect it, it just seems like the, the oddest giveaway that I, uh, I, I guess it, it certainly has something to do with, uh, with Holland, but, uh, certainly yeah. Again, for a lot of us, it's it's a very strange thing. It, it says here on their website they've been giving these away for over sixty years. Wow, I didn't know. I I mean, I, I've flown KLM infrequently, but for quite a long time, and I've always experienced it. But I didn't realize it was that long. So it is it is quite the tradition. And and there's a picture here. You know, the the houses are different, and it looks like if you set them all next to each other, it creates what looks like a very Dutch Amsterdam street of row houses oh, which, very uh, much so yeah i used to have uh, yeah. i used to actually have a bunch and I, I guess i got rid of them but uh uh yeah it, it very it very much represents the character of the country and so i mm-hmm. i don't think it's a bad idea it's just an unusual idea it is unusual um i'm i'm, I'm gonna be in amsterdam and uh, two other cities in the netherlands next week actually i'm, I'm not flying klm in or out so I assume I, you're an, you're an American flight, uh, uh, Amer- uh British Airways, and, okay. and um, uh, what am I flying? I'm flying from I think I'm I'm flying Swiss Air from Zurich to Amsterdam. But, okay, well, I like Swiss um, Air. But the uh, the other the other details on the website it says the first little miniature houses in 1952 given to passengers, or no, it's uh, in the 1980s. This is wrong. Uh, so it started in 1952. It says the first houses were filled with, uh, is this pronounced Geneva? Gen- Gen- it's like, it's a variant of gin that's made okay. there. Okay. N-E-V-E-R. I don't even know how to pronounce that. I don't know. It says before that they contained a liqueur or gin from Dutch distilleries. Okay. Well, you know, uh, certainly makes it a little more interesting to receive uh yeah. but uh quite quite the tradition quite the tradition and i and i will say i i, I went from there to a delta flight and the service went up quite a bit yeah. um so klm uh, i don't know if they've gone downhill or just my my expectations in delta has gone up but uh wasn't wasn't the the best flight of course beijing to Amsterdam and yeah. 12 plus hours is hard to make enjoyable. So, yeah. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, the time on board and um, one thing American airlines does every year at the end of the year, or maybe it's in January, they send you an email and the last couple of years, they calculate not only how many hour or not how many miles, not only how many miles, but how many hours, and I think it is flight hours. So you take that number and help yep. it by something. And Yeah. I'd rather not know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what's the point of that data? I don't know. Yeah. Are they trying to make me fly less? <laughs> well, and speaking of time, you know, especially international, one of the, the worst parts of the time is the time to get through the airport, you know, get through immigration and, and uh, security and all that stuff through international airports. And then, because you don't want to be late for an international flight. You, you sit around for a while waiting, but um, yeah, my, my trip out of Beijing and I've, I've done this trip multiple times. I, I, I got picked up at the hotel and uh, driven to the airport through, uh, through initial security on a tram uh, to a terminal uh, through immigration, through security, 
and to my gate in an hour. And uh, it was, it's just compared to, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, getting through the Beijing airport, uh, they really have made that a pretty darn good airport. Yeah. Uh, efficient and convenient and, and, and relatively easy for the, mm. the, the size. And um, really impressed because I know they deal with a lot of traffic and a lot of the traffic is, is captive. Yeah. Um, and I've been there and spent, you know, hours waiting in lines, but it was, it, it blew me away how efficient and smooth the entire process was. Mm. I was, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see some more U.S. airports operate like they, like they did this time. So, yeah. Cause I mean, I think a lot of times when you're traveling, you, you may not run, you, you might run across inefficiency or you might say, okay, I'm going to try to turn off that part of my brain. Teach off my lean brain just to tolerate. <laughs> yeah, you you tend like I said. That's why I don't count hours. You just you just put up with the process. So, yeah. um, what's been what's been your uh, latest takeaway from your travels? Well, uh, I've seen a couple things. When you talk about process, I was on one flight um, the other day where up in the front before takeoff, um, it seemed pretty clear that one flight attendant was giving the other flight attendant training. Um, so I'm like, well, clearly the flight attendants have courses and training and particularly around the safety that this was training more around here's the sequence of what and how you serve to, to passengers in domestic first class, you know, but, mm-hmm. but still I'm like, I, like, I can imagine on the job coaching, but it really, I mean, maybe there's an argument for not giving the training before you could practice, but it still it kind of struck me a little, made me think. I don't know. Well, and there's some things that, you know, it really helps to have real passengers and uh, uh, real issues to, to make the training come home. So, yeah, uh, you know, maybe it's a, it's a combination. And sometimes, you know, you, you get some on-the-job training and somebody starts with, forget everything you learned. <laughs> We're going to start over. <laughs> maybe that's what... <laughs> I mean, yeah, that could be, but the, uh, but the other thing I was going to talk about, and, you know, this is more related to systems and metrics and management, but, um, I was on a different flight where they were, uh, making the overhead announcements about, you know, come on, everyone, we're going to get an on-time departure. And it, it wasn't as nasty as sometimes the announcements are, but then I heard a passenger was talking to the flight attendant and then I sort of chimed in and seems this happens a lot. But the flight attendant talked about how, um, in his experience anyway, the gate agents are the ones who really get punished for late departures. Yep. But then he said that sometimes leads to a blame game where the gate agents will blame the flight attendants. Yep. And, and I think, well, that it's, you know, you've, you've got the, t- there, there's a book um, I've only read part of called The Tyranny of Metrics. And this seems to fit that phrase where, you know, a flight could depart 10 minutes late and still land on time because they pad the flight times to help with the on-time arrival metric. Right. But there's all this stress that ensues. And you think of how, you know, how this hurts teamwork and, you know, it's maybe unfair to blame people for the system design because, you know, the airline charges for checked bags, but then I think people have figured out, well, if you try to carry it on board and then they run out of room, they check it for free. And yep. that creates chaos in the boarding, as I'm sure you've seen way too often. Well, and, and, and of course, they need a way to measure that. So since they can't control everything, their metric is closing the door. 
Mm-hmm. And so there is a rush to close the door, even if that's, you're, you're nowhere near ready to take off uh, for whatever reason, but, but you've hit your metric. Um, and then that hurts connecting passengers. And, you know, you've seen this happen where um, somebody run, you know, you, you're standing in the terminal and someone runs up to a gate and they're like, oh, I, you know, I need to get on. And I'm like, sorry, we've stopped boarding. And like, but I, the plane is right there. And like, no, yep. we've closed the door. Uh, that happened to me on an international trip where I, I watched them close the door in front of me. So, uh, yeah, it certainly happens. And of course, you need a you need a fair and consistent way to to do these metrics. Um, uh, but uh, you know, you do have to you do have to do the direct observation to understand the consequences, right? And, yeah. And understand at the point of activity what are the consequences of our metrics, and and there's no perfect metric hardly ever. Yeah. So, uh, so use metrics as one resource to help you drive culture, drive behavior, but not certainly not the only thing. Yeah. But I think it gets worse when metrics are being used for punishment or reward. Like if the metric is just there to help us identify how to work together to improve the metrics, not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's what we're doing with the metric, right? Yep. So, uh, you know, one thing that happens when we fly is, uh, uh, you know, we get served a drink. Um, I, I found that uh, there, there's two socially acceptable reasons for drinking in the morning. One is tailgating, uh, and the, the other is flying. Um, so, uh, so, so we always have our whiskey of, whiskey of choice. Um, so, so this time... Uh, partially because I was traveling and had to bring some with me. Uh, but also it's a category we haven't chosen yet. Uh, as we, we focused on whiskeys under $35 and, uh, but, but, but good enough that you can drink neat. Uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of, you know, only mixing uh, whiskeys yeah. under 35. Yeah. But, but you, but you mentioned, you know, the planes and, you know, what American serves, um, you know, doers, Yep. Scotch is definitely under $35. They have Glenlivet, which isn't much over. What's a bottle of Glenlivet? 40, 50? Uh, I don't know if I've ever bought one. Yeah. But you, you get what you get, or they have Crown Royal or Jack Daniels or. Right. Those are cheaper. I would not put either of those in the good enough to drink neat category. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's always, I've recently at least had at a sky club. Their house was some old Forester. Uh, huh. bourbon and that it wasn't too bad as a as a house uh, free selection um, but there's a lot of stuff that 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 you know kind of bumps up against the thirty five dollars and and uh, quite good stuff uh, from bourbons which where probably most of it is um, all the way through uh, 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 blended scotch like monkey shoulder which is mm-hmm. uh, under thirty five um, so we each picked we each pick something in the, the under 35 category. Um, so, so I, I picked one uh, that uh, I, I have to say I never would have bought, and I, I really do this anyway, but really would have just bought off the shelf and said, let me try that. Uh, why? I actually read price or why? No, just I, you know, I, I don't know anything about it off ah. the, off the, you know, off the cuff and uh, hadn't tried it in a restaurant or nobody's stuck it in front of me to, 
to, to give a shot, give a try. Um, but I uh, actually read an article about this and became interested. So I ended up at a place and they had a bottle. So I bought it and it's just under the, I think it was 34 99. So just, mm-hmm. just under the wire. But um, uh, it, it's called, it, uh, correct me if I pronounce this wrong. It's called Legent. I don't know if it's Legent or Legent. Uh, I always, I always assumed it was Legent, uh, uh, but uh, you know, certainly has a legend connotation. But maybe a gentleman's, uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but I've always thought it was Legent, but I don't know if let's that's say Legent. Yeah. We'll, we'll use that for we'll now. Say legend. Um, <clears throat> but this is an interesting story. So, Suntory, uh, the Japanese. Uh, 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 Spirits House bought Jim Beam, who's also darn large, uh, very large houses uh, of, of a collection of different spirits. And, and so, uh, so Centauri Beam or Beam Centauri or whatever they call the U.S. version. I think the Americans say Beam Centauri, but I think it's technically Centauri Beam. <laughs> yeah, I think Centauri Holdings is the master enterprise over top, uh, if I remember correctly. Mm. So, uh, you know, Jim Beam has quite the collection of, of barrels uh, of bourbon. Um, and, you know, the master master distiller, uh, Fred No, is uh, actually seventh generation um, and, and certainly has a, uh, a, a, a significant influence on the Jim Beam collection, which by itself, you know, I, I never really end up buying Jim Beam. So this might be the first I've bought yeah. in that category they, they do make a lot of good they have a lot of good stuff in the jim beam family right yeah exactly yeah I, so i've never bought a jim beam branded product that i can remember uh, but in the in the collection there's quite a bit of uh, uh i'll say i won't call them micro brands because they're owned by a massive company but uh smaller yeah. uh, uh uh brands at least um so so all the all the all the bourbon all the whiskey in this is is from Jim Beam, but then it was blended uh, uh, by a chief blender of Centauri, uh, Shinji Fukuyo. Um, so he's their, their chief blender. And so it's a collaboration between uh, master distiller Fred No and chief blender uh, Shinji Fukuyo. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, you know, they have some, some Kentucky straight bourbon as part of the blend. And then they took some other Jim Beams and finished them in, in sherry or red wine casks, and then created this this blend uh, uh, called Legend. Uh, um, Legend. Uh, we, we we might be wrong in the pronunciation. I, I will correct the record. I was wrong. They are Beam Suntory. They this are Beam Suntory of Suntory Beverages and Food Limited. There you go. Subsidiary of Suntory Holdings. <laughs> That's it. So Centauri Holdings being the master organization. And, and, and I have to say, this is, uh, you know, it, 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 it tastes, it has some of that sweetness and, and uh, easy drinking of, of many bourbons in the, in the category. I do think it, it, it punches above its price point. Yeah. Um, I, it, and it really has some of those finishing characteristics that the Japanese uh, whiskey makers are known for. Um, you know, some of the, some of the complexities, uh, on the back end, um, you know, different layers of flavors. And I, I usually don't go into the, the specific flavors, but, 
the complexity uh, of, of, of this particular whiskey, um, especially at the price point, is, is, has been pleasantly surprising. I, I really have to say, I'll, I'll buy this again. I think that's yeah. for sure. And if I, I just poured a little bit, I've got a bottle of this and um, Jamie chose it first in the, uh, the prep, but I've, I've got one that, that, that I'm bringing to the discussion, but I was real excited when I read the release about the, the news story about this whiskey coming out because uh, I love Japanese whiskey. Um, I like some of the Jim Beam products, uh, Maker's Mark and Dewar, or um, uh, I'm not Dewar's. Um, Booker's. Booker's, okay, yep. Is Maker's Mark part of their family too? It was just on their website. Boy, I don't remember. Uh, it's so hard to keep track. There's so much consolidation in that market. Yeah, but um, I mean, I, so I thought this would be a lot. Yeah, Maker's Mark is part of their family. But I thought this Legent was going to be a lot more expensive when I read about it. And I thought it would Me be too. a lot harder to find. Yeah, it's really not that hard to find. They, no. they, they seem to, it's not a limited release it's it's its own brand it has its own website and i i've seen it at bars i, I mean i picked it up the place i was at had a pretty wide selection but i picked it up at a, a spirit shop and um yes yeah, it's, it, it's actually quite a decent volume and a really good price and so i i don't know how long they'll keep it up um yeah. uh, I, I assume once they start launching their own websites that the intent is to keep this one around forever. But uh, like I said, it punches well above its price point. Yeah. And uh, if you're looking for a cheaper, complex, you know, drinking uh, 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 whiskey or well, bourbon, this, this is a great whiskey. choice. <laughs> <laughs> Are you washing your hair with it? Although I know. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I like Sherry cask, um, whiskeys, finished whiskeys. I, I, when you find more unusual, when they say red wine, they're not real specific, but you know, I've got some no. whiskeys or bourbons that will say specifically they're finished in a, a Cabernet barrel or, uh, or what have you. But yeah, this is a, a, a really, really nice uh, whiskey for 35. So and, you might've chosen this if I hadn't already. Uh, yeah, I, I probably would have. And, but you know, I was just going to add too. I'm, 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 I'm drooling over the rest of the, the beam some Tory website. When you click on Japanese, you know, they, they have, uh, you know, the Yamazaki family, the Hibiki family, and some of these are getting to be really hard to find even in Japan. Um, I'm going back to Japan in December and I tried booking a tour at the Suntory distillery because they open up the December tours on October 1st okay. and I was busy with, uh, with work stuff. And then October 2nd, I went try to, oh, nope, all full, all sold out. Well, so lesson learned. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm going to be able to go visit a, a Kirin distillery that's kind of near Mount Fuji. So people think of Kirin and beer, right? But they are also a whiskey producer, not as, uh, uh, not you know, not not with brands as popular as the Suntory Japanese whiskeys. Right. Yeah. Well, enjoy that. I'm gonna do a, a Gemba visit there. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about the Legent, or do you want me to talk? No, about no. It? Let's move on to what you selected tonight. All right. Um, and I was gonna add though, when you, you talked about airline clubs, um, you know, I've been fortunate to travel internationally, business class. The two things that stand out: British Airways 
lounge at Heathrow for, for international business class has Johnny Walker blue. And it is, a, it's on the, like, it's available for pour yourself a glass, go for it. Wow. Which is quite generous of them. I think Johnny Walker blue is not worth, I wouldn't, wouldn't go buy a bottle of it for right. the price. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's, it's overrated, overrated relative to the price, I think. Yeah. But it's not, you know, it's not trash whiskey. Either, no, so. no. I mean, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's the opposite of legend in terms of the value perception, I think. But, yep. um, but then the American Airlines flagship club at DFW has, as I've talked about in previous episode or episodes, Garrison Brothers out available for here. Serve yourself. Awesome. Um, but that is not a $35 uh, whiskey. That's about it double the not. price. Um, so the, the under $35 whiskey, and if we're playing, if this was a game show, the price is right. I came in well under $35. You, you win that one. Um, so what I've got here is um, Larceny Weeded Bourbon, which retails, at least when I looked on the Total Wine website, $21 a bottle. I don't like it quite as much as uh, the Legent, but it is, uh, it, uh, you know, I was still willing to sit here and sip it. Um, it is uh, a straight bourbon whiskey. And so there's no age statement on the bottle. So that means it's at least four years old. Right. And the website or one review claims that uh, it comes from barrels that are aged between six and 12 years. So if that was the case, you would call it then a six-year whiskey. That's right. Just whiskey. But um, Larceny is a weeded bourbon. So that like Garrison Brothers, like Maker's Mark, um, they, they use wheat instead of rye. Um, it's, it's 68% corn. Uh, 20% wheat, 12% barley, and it's from um, Heaven Hill Distillery, which is um, a family-owned, um, it's an independent producer. It's not part of a global mega corporation. Well, it, it is its own. It's It may not be mega, but it, it has an awful lot of, uh, of brands <laughs> in its library sure. as well. Yeah. And um, I, I think Larceny is um, – very good for the price. And uh, the one other thing that's interesting about um, Larceny. So, you know, people have heard of, uh, of Pappy Van Winkle bourbon, right? That's a weeded bourbon. And um, there, there are recipes out there online. There was one that's called poor man's Pappy where you combine um, Weller, I should have looked this one up, but you, you combine two other whiskeys. Weller is made um, by the same distillery. Right. And um, here, I'll just Google it for a second. Poor Man's Pappy is, uh, boy, dead, dead air. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'll, I'll find that. But the um, the poorer man's Pappy Van Winkle is, a combination of Maker's Mark, which is a weeded bourbon, and Larceny, which is okay. a weeded bourbon. You do it like a two-to-one ratio, and um, it's supposed to at least kind of approximate the the proof and the mash bill and what have you. It doesn't have the age. No, it won't have the age, but I'm sure it doesn't have quite the quality along with that, but uh, I'm sure the Larceny there helps bring up the, the Maker's Mark a bit, but... Yeah, uh, but the, but um, the, the poor man's pappy is 60% percent 
Weller Antique and 40% Weller 12. And so those are, you know, basically the same, I think, you know, the same distal, it's just not aged as long, which is right. really a closer approximation. But now, you, you, especially Weller 12, you can't find that anywhere now because that's become so acclaimed as a more affordable alternative to the overpriced Pappy Van Winkle. Yep. Excellent. So, you know, so Larceny is one that I, I, uh, I've seen a bunch of times. I've honestly never tried it. So now I'm going to have to, and I, and I do, you know, I have, I like we did bar- bourbon, but I also like, uh, not straight wheat, but I've, I've had some, some, uh, true wheat heavy, uh, mm-hmm. whiskeys mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's a very different flavor profile. And, uh, you know, probably not for everybody. Uh, certainly not as sweet as a uh, um, a corn heavy uh, uh, bourbon or even a rye uh, based bourbon, but um, uh, certainly a, a great addition to any collection. Yeah, I think a weeded bourbon is a little bit more mellow because you don't have the spice of the rye. Right. You know, it's very soft and and. Uh, um, but it does bring out a different flavor profile and, and uh, that's, that's part of the fun of part of the fun of whiskey is all the, all the different flavor profiles you can get from, from all the factors that go into it. Yeah. So we, uh, we touched on uh, Jim Beam and Heaven Hill and uh, even just talking about Weller that's uh, that's out of uh, Buffalo trace. Another really, good that's true. Yeah. Covered quite a, quite a bit of territory there. Yeah. So, so maybe, uh, maybe we talk lean whiskey now, uh, or we talked whiskey, maybe we talk lean. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so as always, uh, we, we, uh, talk about an article in the news, um, and a lot of them are, uh, not so much breaking news, uh, types of articles, but, uh, you know, coverage on various topics and, and our reaction to it. So, um, an article you had already read, but uh, before I shared it, uh, a friend of mine had sent sent this to me, and the article's uh, called "Whatever Happened to Six Sigma?" Um, and it and it really tries to capture, uh, I'll say, a little bit of the rise and the history, uh, and then the the decline of Six Sigma in terms of its popularity. I think the you know one of the interesting stats they used was how often Six Sigma is used in LinkedIn profiles and the, uh, the very, yeah. very clear trend that the, the graph shows and the decline of using Six Sigma. The, the, the number of books uh, about Six Sigma published each year has declined. There was number a number of books. Yeah, I, I would uh, believe we, we probably have, have what yeah. we need at this point. Yeah. But, but we're, we're, we're not here to bury Six Sigma. or to Not at all. Sigma, not at all. Just to let everyone know. Right. Yeah. I think we sometimes get accused of being against Six Sigma. And I'm, I, I, you know, to be clear, I, I've never been against Six Sigma. I think it has very clear benefits, uh, very uh, demonstrable value. Um, I think what happens to me and against my, my visceral reaction sometimes is when it, when it comes to Six Sigma versus lean, as if they're, uh, you know, apples or oranges instead of, you know, apples and wagons, you know, as if they're two, two, two uh, alternatives in the same category, which I don't believe is true. And, 
And I think when you, when you make that comparison, you end up with bad lean or bad versions of lean or narrow versions of lean. And, uh, and that's generally where my, uh, where my reaction. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I've similar, similar thoughts where I tend to cringe more when people say things like, well, lean and six Sigma, it's just different tools in the toolbox. So pull out the right tool for the right job. And I'm like, I don't like calling lean a, a tool. I don't know. Uh, no, I don't, and I, I, I think like that, but no, and the, you know, it's not about you know, what's better. It's, it's about you know, what, what the purpose is and, and right. when done right. And that, I think that's a big qualifier, huge qualifier when done right. Lean is much more of a system of work, a, a management system, a system of work, a system of improvement. And it includes, you know, wide range of, of daily practices to, to methodologies, to systems, to behaviors. Whereas there is a very clear methodology behind Six Sigma and it has uh, uh, great benefits when used mm-hmm. in the proper way uh, it, for the, the right types of problems. But there, there can also be a lot of ridiculousness. And, 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 and I say that prefacing and, and you know, the notes I took from the article, the same could be said about lean. Like I'm not, again, not trying to absolutely out six Sigma. There could be the trap of we're going to train and certify a whole ton of people and then organizationally never allow them to use their training. Right. Or use it in a very people. narrow way or yeah, right. uh, make it only for sunny days instead of uh, other days, every day. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the, you know, a lot of this article focuses on the, the, uh, the relationship between Six Sigma and GE. Mm-hmm. And it, it even, uh, even goes to the point, I, I don't, it doesn't outright say it, but it, it somewhat implies that, that, the correlate there's a there's a relationship between uh, the decline of uh, Six Sigma and the decline of GE. You mm-hmm. know, GE was on a pedestal. It was considered anybody that was from GE was automatically better than other people. Um, they were they were considered a great company. Um, and so I'm I'm curious about your thoughts. Do you believe that there's a relationship? Um, between the decline in GE and the decline of Six Sigma, as I think the article seemed to imply, or simply a coincidence that they happened in the same basic time period. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, part of me is like, come on, Jamie, you're asking the wrong guy because I'm not really a Six Sigma guy, and I'm not, I'm not a GE guy. But, sure. um, but I mean, I think it's an interesting question: is it correlation or causation? You know, the article sort of implied a couple of possibilities. One is that um, after Jack Welch retired, Jeff Immelt was not the same kind of zealot about Six Sigma and the company was less committed to it and it became more optional than required. But then there were also comments in the article that sort of implied that, you know, well, in a digital age, I don't think anyone said Industry 4.0, but, you know, that... that that in this, you know, in this, in the way the world has evolved, maybe Six Sigma is less relevant, not needed as much within GE. There were elements of all of that, right? Yeah, and I, and I, I personally don't believe it's certainly not. Uh, I, I think that the decline of Six Sigma is based on other factors. I mean, we'll get into some of that, but 
the decline of GE uh, really wasn't caused by Six Sigma, uh, nor did the decline of, of GE cause the decline of Six Sigma. Um, I, I think, you know, most many organizations hopped on it. I, I think that, oh, let me back up. I think the, the real connection there uh, is uh, really that a lot of companies did jump into Six Sigma because GE did it. Um, but they didn't think it through. And, and, and so it's, it has nothing to do with GE in the sense that that's why they started, but their failures were their own. They weren't GE's failures. They were their own failures in either overhyping, overstructuring, or underinvesting in the things that would make Six Sigma successful. Yeah, I mean, again, I'll bring it back to the same thing happens with lean. I, you know, I've always said, you know, in, in healthcare, uh, trying to adopt lean because it's trendy or trying to do it because Virginia Mason Medical Center does it, that's about the worst idea, the worst reason to do anything. And in that level of commitment or understanding why or, or the what, it might be, uh, you know, superficial, which leads to what someone might call uh, a failure or the organization gives up on it. But yep. I, w- I was going to throw a question back to you and you've got a different perspective more so on manufacturing than I do. Is this a, a decline of Six Sigma within GE or is, is there a broader trend? Is that, is that fact to say there's been a decline in Six Sigma? The article kind of implied it from recruiter comments. And right. Other things. No, I, I think just looking broadly, I think there is a decline. I think um, a lot of companies that invested in it, especially in internal capabilities, meaning that they have, the ability to train people on their own. They don't have to spend, you know, X amount of dollars on external training year over year. But for companies that built the capability in-house, they recognize the value and they've sustained the continuous investment. But I I think the hype, I think the substance has remained, but the hype has diminished for Mm. those companies. And so it's not, you know, it's not, uh, the savior. It's not uh, the end all be all. It's not, uh, you know, what the company is going to do to, to, to drive quarter over quarter results, but it is a core set of skills, tools, capabilities mm-hmm. that are trained and retained in the organization. And, and I think the companies that made that kind of investment have sustained their Six Sigma efforts. So there haven't, hasn't been a deliberate effort to kill it. But I think there's very few companies that, that perhaps at this point didn't have a program yeah. that, are, that are jumping on the bandwagon now. So I think there's, there's far, far fewer that are, that are starting because if they're, you know, if they're hype-driven, they're going after Industry right. 4.0 or something else anyway. Yeah, but I mean, this seems, this seems to be, you know, there's parallels in different, um, technology hype cycles. We would call Six Sigma a technology or Lean um, a technology. There's, I'm, I'm looking, there, there's one illustration here online that you've got, you know, the, the, the early expectations that rise and then the, the chart shows something called the peak of inflated expectations where people think Six Sigma is a savior or Lean is a savior and this will be easy and it's going to be revolutionary. And then it falls into what they call the trough of disillusionment. Oh, 
this is harder than I thought it would be. You mean, I need to change too as a leader. And then there's a recovery and, um, and, there, and there's progress. But that, that's happened with lean over time. There's been different waves of adoption and popularity in manufacturing. I, I think the same thing has happened in, in different ways in healthcare. Yeah, and I, I think the, uh, the key being that, you know, do people face uh, the limitations of their own approaches, right? Mm-hmm. Most of it's not a, a limitation of lean. Um, it's a limitation of how they approached it. And when you, when you force uh, a, a scaled back version, I do, yeah. I do believe fundamentally lean is an operating system, a management system, a day-to-day operating system. And, and so if you, if you have a narrower definition and you start force fitting it, into places that doesn't resonate, that doesn't actually help people with their problems, mm-hmm. or fundamentally is supported in a way uh, that that drives the right right behaviors and practices right. versus just how many projects did I complete? That that's when you get uh, a very superficial implementation. And mm-hmm. and Six Sigma, I, I do remember a Jack Welsh quote even though it seems to conflict with a bit of the article, which the article seemed to imply it went from a quality focus to a cost focus. Uh, although Jack Welsh seems to tell a different story. He seems to say when we had a cost focus for Six Sigma, you know, I was offered the, the GDP of Belgium or I forget hmm. what country he actually used as a reference. But the point was he was promised uh, massive cost savings that that was far greater than the actual revenue of the company. Um, but when they fo- changed the focus to uh, customer experience, customer expectations, mm-hmm. and quality and delivery of those expectations, that's when it actually got stronger. Uh, the article but, here seems yeah. to suggest the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I, what my perception is that Six Sigma has evolved from being focused on quality and reducing defects and reducing variation to becoming a very cost reduction driven approach. And, and, and I think that's, that's troublesome to make costs the primary focus where I, I still, I, I, I believe in, in the more, um, you know, the, the, the lean approach of safety, quality, delivery, cost, and morale, you know, that balanced scorecard and, I'm trying to look, but you know, I'm gonna. I, I know at one point I, I was looking this up. Where, well, I was I was coaching a nurse. Let me tell a quick story. I was coaching a nurse who had Six Sigma black belt training in a previous organization, and she was trying to learn lean, and and she was really eager, and she she didn't come. She wasn't a know it all because she already had Six Sigma training. But she when when I kept talking about different benefits around waiting time. And, 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 and she kept saying, well, so how do we calculate the ROI of that? And I'm like, why do you keep bringing up ROI? And she's like, well, every, every project has to have a cost savings, right? I'm like, well, but there, there are different benefits than cost. And we looked up on the ASQ website where sure enough for certification or their definition of projects, it absolutely said, and this is from the American society for quality, right? I don't have the page right in front of me, but I, I, I will attest to this and I'll, I'll find it and link to it if I have to, where ASQ have this cost reduction requirement. Now you could say, well, in theory, reducing defects will reduce costs, but right. we know this can also get steered in a different direction where someone's just demanding cost savings that has nothing to do with quality. 
that that would be my concern. Yeah, and that's you know I, I think the you know first of all translating uh, uh, actual changes to a process into financial results uh, depends on a lot of things, including the maturity of your costing system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, including the uh, the skill set to uh, convert activity to cost, and 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 so that's not a skill set actually taught in most Six Sigma programs. So you're you're up you're you're left to the uh, ability of the organization to naturally make those connections, or you end up with a project that is easy to make those connections, which is more true, mm-hmm. you know, hard cost, if you will. Um, I, I think the the other factor I, we've seen I've seen this in direct projects is you know the, the forecast the long term forecast for a product varies from quarter to quarter by fifty seventy five percent right the the market's all over the place and it's just a forecast so if I have a ten percent yield improvement based on my six sigma project well what's the future volume of the pro of the product right. well it has a massive change to the the, the cost impact. Um, yeah. So, so I think those things are, are limiting and, and I think it goes to, uh, I'll say a false confidence in the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do we truly understand the change? Uh, do we want to truly understand the change or do we just want to hit a target in terms of dollars saved or even what is six Sigma? I, right. I remember one particular project I saw that, that, that really bothered me. It, it's, it's been years now and it still bothers me to this day. Uh, th- they claimed that their, their observations, right, their observable data points were in the tens of thousands. And, and so based on the error rate that they saw, that they had truly achieved a great result based on these tens of thousands of, of, of recordable uh, opportunities. And, and then I, you know, ask, after asking a few questions, because of the high volume manufacturing aspect of what this company did, all of those observations, all of those data points were from the same shift on the same day. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. so it, it, it's, you know, there, there assumes that there's no variation from day to day, no variation right. from right. run to run, no variation from shift to shift. Right. But because they had a big denominator that they were really confident in their, uh, numerator and and, yeah. and what it told them and and that's again they they their their uh, uh, their statistical analysis sounded good their their scientific analysis sounded awful yeah well and um, we talk about data I think I, I have seen a trend where I think a lot of hospitals maybe ten years ago got really excited about Six Sigma including one hospital that I visited in Japan because they had GE Healthcare pushing Six Sigma on them. And they had already been doing TQM. And, you know, the, the hospital CEO in Japan basically said, nah, we got rid of Six Sigma when they, they were embracing lean uh, practices. But they already have, you know, I think that foundation of a, a culture of quality and engagement and the CEO having responsibility for quality. And, you know, I think a lot of that ties in well um, with, with, with lean. Um, but it's just coming back to it real quick and, and gosh, maybe we need to move on. We could talk about this article for 
<laughs> many episodes, but Certainly. I did find that I'm going to read something from an ASQ page, frequently asked questions. What is the definition of a Six Sigma project? Six Sigma projects measure the cost benefit of improving processes that are producing substandard products or services. So again, like reducing scrap. When I worked at General Motors, reducing scrap reduced costs. Fair enough. <laughs> but you know, with, with, with waiting times in an ambulatory surgery center, I do not know how to translate a 30-minute reduction in patient waiting time into cost. Because right. it doesn't necessarily translate to capacity, which might right. be more about revenue. It can translate to patient satisfaction, which for the, for the ambulatory surgery centers, they do not get penalized for poor patient satisfaction. They may in the future. No, but again, like, can't we just work on something that the organization decides is the right thing to work on for the patient and for the future of the organization without calculating our cost savings? And the, and the nurse came around and she's like, okay, I'll stop worrying about cost savings because her leaders weren't asking her to come up with cost savings. Which, which is, uh, you know, perhaps the, the, the uh, silver lining there. And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, as we, you know, because of the, the, the depth of Six Sigma and because of the investment uh, that's required in terms of training and, and, uh, uh, and the, the value which we put on certification, there is this belief that this project has to deliver a significant amount of value. And, it, and I think it, it forces us to, I don't say pad, because that certainly would be mm-hmm. almost, uh, well, certainly disingenuous, but it, it means that I want this project, this one project to be significant as opposed to 50 projects, which might be way faster and add up to a whole lot more. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of the challenge is that there's sort of a, uh, a, often a cultural perception of, I want a Six Sigma project to be hard. Mm-hmm. I want it to be complex. I want it. I want you to grind and, and work your way through all sorts of things. And that's fine for teaching people, forcing them to, to learn through application uh, all the skills you want them to learn. But in terms of an ongoing practice, uh, how much effort you put into improvement, we should be seeking to minimize. Now, I'm not saying, you know, go off the cuff and just make ideas up and, and run with it. Right. Right. It's, it's return on investment though, right? If I, mm-hmm. if, if I can save a dollar after spending one, um, that ain't bad. Right. So, mm-hmm. so it, it's, it's, I think often there's sort of this pressure to put more energy into some Six Sigma projects than might be necessary relative to the problem they're actually trying to solve. Yeah. And once you put the investment in, then of course you need the return so you, you, you have, you're under a lot of pressure to produce uh, an outsized return. Yeah. Do you want to do uh, the lean coffee voting? Jamie and I are on video chat. We could do thumbs up, thumbs down. Do you want to do it? Yeah, let's, let's, uh, yeah, we, we, we really could talk about this. I'm not sure a bottle of whiskey is even enough for uh, some of our six segment discussions. I, so uh, I want to revisit. There are other aspects of this article that would, would be interesting to talk about. Can I ask you one kind of follow-up question, wrap up? question for this fire away so earlier i I wanted to see um paraphrase what you were saying um and 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 tell me if i heard you right um you were categorizing lean as more of a 
an operating system management system where Six Sigma is more of a problem solving methodology. And that's where you're saying it's not really apples to apples. It's not even apples to oranges. It's apples and the cart that you would carry the apples in They're They, 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 they work together, but they're different. Is that yeah. What they're, they're fundamentally different. Um, you know, within lean, within, you know, what I consider lean, which is an operating system, a management system, you have many tools, many tools to, to drive out waste, to solve problems, to standardize processes, uh, to engage people, et cetera, to make decisions, to execute in a robust and consistent manner. And, and, and so problem solving is one of those categories. And Six Sigma is one of those methodologies that you can use, you can use, you don't have to use, but you can use to solve complex problems where data is available and useful to solve that particular problem. Um, and so I, I do think fundamentally where we get tripped up is comparing them as an either or. And it's, it's not even what's better than the other. It's not that a oh, management system is good and a problem solving methodology is bad. They're just different, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Microsoft Office is, is pretty productive. Uh, Google Suite is pretty productive, but it's nothing to do. It's not like I use you know, Microsoft Office or Lean they're right. completely different things right. to serve different purposes. And, yeah. Yeah. and, and so I, I think the argument of lean versus six Sigma is just a wasted effort. Um, and, and, and starts with a, uh, a, a, an ignorant understanding of what at least one or the other might be. Mm-hmm. And there is some ignorance out there and technically speaking, ignorance doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means nope. you don't know something. And I always say you can't blame somebody. You generally can't blame somebody for not knowing something. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah. I blame I blame most ignorance on myself because it means I yeah. haven't educated people well enough. So yeah. it's, it's but, a but, lack but, of yeah. understanding. But there's there's a straw man um, where you know uh, you know I, 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 we've probably talked about in other episodes where you know um, in the context of this quote unquote, lean six Sigma, where people will say like the one that makes me raise my glass and drink in a sad way is you know, <laughs> lean is for speed and six Sigma is for quality. And I'm like, no, I think that's factually incorrect. Well, whoa, wait, 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 we're not arguing which is better. I'm like, I never said anything about which was better. I'm just saying you're mischaracterizing lean. Absolutely. So then it just derails into that. Enough of that. Well, yep. So we'll, we can talk about, like I said, that's, that might, uh, I didn't bring a bottle with me. So, uh, all right. uh, I only brought a glass with me. So, no. Um, but, but that was a really rich, uh, long article. It's from uh, a website, Quartz at Work, and and we'll link to that in the show notes. But yeah, this article was being emailed around a lot and shared on LinkedIn a lot uh, from September 3rd, 2019. Yep. Absolutely. So we'll share that. Um, and so, uh, so moving on from the article, you know, we, we love our, our listener questions. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I will have to share it. We, we got this one and I'll let you introduce it, but we, we got it from a LinkedIn post, I think, mm-hmm. uh, about, Hey, we want more, you know, we always want more questions and, and, uh, I, I will share. I was, I remember sitting next to my wife, uh, at one point and, and said, hey, I, I, have, I have seven likes on this post I made about asking for listener questions, but not a question yet. 
So stop liking it and ask us a question. <laughs> but but we got a darn good one. So why don't yeah. you fire away? Yeah, and, and I'll invite people. Um, you can email either of us or send us a LinkedIn message. Uh, if you have a question for a future episode, mark at markraven.com is mine. Jamie's is? Jamie at jflinch.com. And um, uh, do I need to change my email address to mgrab.com, <laughs> my domain? <laughs> you might as well. I might as well, but it's marketmarkgraven.com. So Pedro Montero asked, uh, or he said, lean is often seen as a part-time or side job. People say things like, I'll do lean when I put this fire out. Do you see that? Um, how do you fix that? Yeah, I, I thought this was a really good question. Um, uh, you know, it, it is fundamentally, you know, is lean a way of life? Is it a management system, operating system, or is it a, a program, right? Um, and, you know, similar to, you know, health, and I don't want to extend this analogy too far, but, you know, you can be on a program, you can be on a diet, but is it a way of life? Is it a lifestyle? Right. And I, and I do think, you know, one of my favorite phrases is, is, you know, I'm doing lean right now, but then I have to go back to my day job. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a huge improvement, a huge implication that continuous improvement is not part of our day job. Um, that, that my day job is meetings and emails and a bunch of other decisions and improvement really is perceived as something we do when convenient, when required, when part of a program. It's a luxury. It's a a luxury. And that's, and and of course, if we treat it that way, uh, you know, I think the the consequences are pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's this catch 22 where I think it's interesting to look and try to emulate. There's a Toyota expression and I've seen other organizations really embrace this. Everybody has two jobs, to do your work and to improve your work. And you can have that cultural expectation. And that might be the reality. Maybe, you know, it's an ideal that is generally true, even if, you know, Toyota's not perfect. So we talk about ideals, but they're probably, they're probably close to that. Where in some organizations, you know, let's say in healthcare, that might be a vision. It's not today's reality, but the vision, the hope, the goal is everyone will be doing their work and improving their work. And that, that that's a, an opportunity, not a burden. But, but at, this, at some point it does have to be, how, how do you get the ball rolling? Um, you don't just declare that's now our culture. It, it's it's got to be a program or you've got to have facilitators or some sort of artificial external energy and time to get the ball rolling, right? Yeah, you know, anything that has momentum or habit or, uh, you know, certainly has cemented in a certain form, you need some way to break that up. And, uh, and that can be artificial, to be honest. You can fabricate that change or you can sort of cajole and commit to that change. And I don't think that's a right or wrong. It depends on how, how, how hard your cement is. Um, in that, uh, I'll share an example of this um, of of you know outright manipulation to try to get the ball rolling. Is we had uh, in one organization these frontline supervisors 
we were so busy with just you know maintaining just keep the mm -hmm. keep the wheels on the bus going and right. and uh day in day out minute in minute out and so we we reorganized this particular organization and and changed the job so the maintaining uh scope was was reduced to by the number of people and then we took an, a, a subset of that that group maybe about a third and said giving you a new job title it's a new job that doesn't exist and, and and this is literally what we said we've done the we've done the ie study we've we've, we've studied the jobs and 30 percent i don't remember what the number was but let's just say 30 percent of 30 percent of your job is to do continuous improvement mm. now you know there's no there was no ai study there was absolutely no no science behind 30 yeah, percent some we just made it up we said yeah. we designed this job so that 30 percent of your time was based on continuous improvement now because there it was a new job there was no bad habits to change right mm -hmm. you're in a new job you have to learn the job and we simply declared that 30 percent of your time was continuous improvement and they didn't know any better right they didn't know that it shouldn't be and so that's how they started they started that new job with the idea that 30 percent of their time was on continuous improvement and it was a manipulation sure um but did it break the log jam did it absolutely right these, these folks spent i think more than 30 percent of their time we never went back and observed but more than 30 percent of their time on continuous improvement and so you know the momentum the stagnation the 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 congealing of the current habits you, you do need a way to break that in some way yeah yeah and i think the other part of the question i want to comment on is this balance between firefighting and root cause corrective action that you know the, the 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 habit of firefighting the rush that comes from firefighting may in and of itself be a barrier to preventing future fires and that's not just a matter of time that's a matter of what feels good right yeah and it, it's it, it's interesting if you actually you know uh, really overreach on the firefighting analogy and look at actual firefighters mm -hmm. where, where I live, which is pretty rural and not a whole lot of action going on, right? the same people can do, uh, you know, firefighting, fire prevention, yep. fire education and fundraising, you know, parades and all that other stuff in yep. the firehouse. But if you go to Manhattan where the urgency is high um, the infrastructure is old and the population is high. You know, if you're in a fire truck, you know, it's not like the TV shows where you spend half the time, uh, you know, making out with your fellow firefighter in the firehouse. It's you're on call. You're going from, from call to call to call. Most of many of which are, are false calls, but you got to respond because yeah, right. it's a, it's a, you know, a 4,000 person building. Yeah. And so, you can't have, I think this is very important, in that environment when you're running so fast in what is technically the firefighting job, you have to designate different resources for fire prevention. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in Manhattan, you know, the, 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 the firefighters don't try to do fire prevention work or fire education work in between calls to skyscraper to skyscraper. There's separate resources that drive that because they've had to make sure that there was allocation to the preventive work. Yeah, yeah. 
And so I think you have to really, yeah. you know, understand your work profile, your urgency, uh, how, how actually vital fighting the fire is. Is it just, is it just a draw or is it actually like really vital that you, uh, fight that fire at that moment? Yeah. And then you can decide what your design is. Is it a portion of a job? Is it separate resources? Uh, how are you going to manage the fires and the fire prevention? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you, you mentioned New York, one other random tidbit I'm going to add here. There is a uh, firefighting museum in Manhattan. That's pretty cool to go look at. There's a lot of old equipment and hmm. history and everything. The thing that was mind blowing was reading about the history of before the municipal publicly funded New York city fire department, NYFD fire departments were privately run by insurance companies, hmm. different insurers who insured different buildings, but have their own private fire brigades. And so then you have this weird dynamic where if you had two buildings right next to each other covered by different insurance companies, like there, there there's, you, you can see where this quickly turns into wait a minute, shouldn't this be a public function instead of a private function? Well, and, 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 and you know, again, maybe overreaching, but extending that into our organizations, you know, who cares about this particular fire, right? And in that case, it's a very clear incentive alignment between firefighter and, and, and the insurance claim against that fire. Yeah. Right. Right. But we, but we do have that same problem, right. In organizations where department a it's number one on their priority list, but Department B, who they need collaboration from, it's 50th on the priority list. And, yeah. and that makes some of the problem solving more difficult, where if we're more aligned on what's important, on our vision, on our metrics, uh, on what we need to deliver for customers, it's easier to say, you know, what's one on my list is at least in the top five on your list. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you, Pedro, for the question. And, and hopefully we'll have more questions coming in. So uh, that's going to bring about bring things to a close. Are, are you at the bottom of your whiskey? Um, I'm, limited, I'm, I'm damn close. Your limited supply. My limited uh, supply. But to, to wrap up here, you, you had a question. Yeah. So as always, we like to, we like to end with a fun note, um, which is always appropriate at the, at the bottom of a glass. Yeah. Um, and, and, and at least anecdotally, I've gotten some pretty good responses on the, uh, on the, on the questions we've used that are sort of get to know you, mm -hmm. um, uh, not just trivia, but actually, you know, a little, yeah. a little, uh, behind the, behind the scenes. So, so I thought a fun one was what was your first job? Um, obviously it, it, in many cases, it probably is unrelated to what we do today. Um, yeah. what, was your, what was your first job? Well, so as, as a, a teenager and in high school, I had, I, I worked, I had a number of jobs. Um, I had a Detroit newspaper route, which was sort of like being a contractor and managing a business. I guess I was good education. Um, I, when I was 15, a friend of mine from the neighborhood was working at Taco Bell and I thought it would be fun to also work at Taco Bell. And I learned quickly that no, that was... <laughs> I, I, you know, I get little grease splatter burns and I'm like, ah, no, I didn't do that. So I got a better job at the mall selling video games, a store called Babbage's, 
which uh, we sold in we sold everything from Nintendo to Sega to Game Boy to Microsoft Windows and uh, PC mm. software. And I also worked as a Little League umpire. Wow. That, 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 that sounds like fun. The, the I know you said course. job, but it's more like, <laughs> no, that's, that's all, jobs. that's all fun. So, so, so let me ask, did you, uh, did you get to, uh, uh, while you're waiting for the next customer to come in, did you get to play the video games? During a really slow time, we weren't supposed to, but <laughs> no, uh, but a, a Game Boy, uh, you know, I mean, they wanted you to be familiar with the product. So one of the perks was uh, a benefit of being able to um, uh, take product home to, to be able to better understand. So I, I did work a little bit part-time in college, and this was during the heyday of Sega Genesis and NHL yeah. hockey and Madden football. Hmm. And um, yeah, so but, but that, that, was, that was one of the perks I enjoyed, the discount and being able to, to try product out. Very cool. How about you? You you worked as well? Yeah, so so probably the earliest official would would be uh, I, I did fill in for a friend on their paper route as a, a substitute when they would be on vacation uh, from from time to time. But the first consistency I had in any task was uh, you know, and again one of these one of these jobs that I didn't exactly have to stand in that long queue waiting to apply. Um, but my my father. Uh, owned and ran a, m- a machine shop. We basically made machine tools, actually OD, ID, uh, cylindrical grinders, uh, high precision, very, very cool stuff. But a lot of what went into it was pretty raw machine shop type of type of processes. And I would go in on weekends and act as a janitor. Uh, hmm. And that'd be everything from cleaning the bathrooms uh, to uh, shoveling machine chips, right? Hmm. So the, the lathes would be just yeah. covered in in a uh, little spirally uh, mm-hmm. uh, shards from from the the, the lathe work and yeah you know I'd, I'd get a little pitchfork and shovel it into vats and <laughs> and sweep the floors and and uh, I'd spend all day while my my father would be working in his office on a Saturday I'd spend I'd spend the day cleaning the machine shop and it it uh, it uh, honestly I, I have no idea. Uh, you know what I got paid, if anything, quite frankly, but <laughs> but but it was you know it got me close to manufacturing. It got me close to uh, you know making real stuff, and right. uh, and 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 the shop wasn't always super busy on a Saturday, but there would be enough people around that occasionally you know I didn't have a boss who was managing my time. I'd get to detour and you know, uh, run some machine tools and stuff like hmm. that. So, um, it, you know, it was it, it, to this day, uh, machine oil, the mist of machine oil in the air has a nostalgic feeling to me, yeah. uh, because of my time working in the, in the, on the machine shop floor, uh, now, uh back when I was young, you, did you want to be a janitor or was this parenting where your dad said, Jamie, you need to start, you need to start here. You know, I probably couldn't remember. I'm, I'm sure at this day, I, I, I would probably say that I was, you know, I had an aspiration and was willing to start at the bottom, but, but I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it was, 
it, it was it was an opportunity, and whose idea it was, I'm not I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> All right, um, but it, it honestly it did give me a great appreciation for uh, what went on, um, and, and probably is one of the factors that led to me uh, working on an engineering education. Well, cool, good. Part of what spurred me to that was realizing I was not going to work at Taco Bell the rest of my life. And the question is, do you? Have you ever eaten at Taco Bell after working there? Very rarely, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the process and the food and everything has changed a whole lot. But sure. we, this is back in the day where um, we actually cooked raw ground beef, which I don't know if they allow teenagers in a store that responsibility anymore. I, I think it all comes in pre-cooked. And yeah, a lot of it's pre-cooked. And, and I have to say, I was at a, one of my clients, uh, you know, I, 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 I would watch them roll on grill marks, you know, grilled chicken at Taco oh, Bell's oh, definitely oh. not actually grilled. Um, uh, yeah, it's just marked that way, but, uh, uh I'm more a lot of people found it a Chipotle than a Taco Bell. <laughs> uh, um, um, I think that's fair. Fair statement. So, all right. Well, Thanks again, Jamie. Fun, fun episode. You, you said at the end, it's a fun question. I think it's all fun questions, but it, it is all fun. This is, um, you know, this, I, I enjoy this. And, and as we, you know, as the lead up to even starting episode one, right, this is, this is what we talk about. Um, when we would get together in person, uh, you know, after, after the work is done or after whatever conference we're at, we go out, have a whiskey, and we talk about things like, uh, like change management, like you know Six Sigma versus Lean, like how do you, how do you drive engagement? I mean, this is what we would talk about over a whiskey. So that's, that's the whole impetus for, uh, yeah, uh, for this entire if, podcast. If, if, for anyone who has made it to the end of the episode, thank you, <laughs> thank you. For, yeah, for we doing. always appreciate our listeners. Um, the, the feedback's been phenomenal, and. Uh, uh, we always look forward to more. Um, you know, this might not be the most crisp and polished and um, I'll, I'll say uh, efficient podcast in the world. Um, <laughs> but but as long as we enjoy ourselves and if enough people listen that uh, they learn something from it as well, uh, yeah. it's all worth the effort. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun and, we want to ask people, you know, if this is your first time listening, um, you, you can learn more and you can find past episodes a, a number of ways. You can go to leanwhiskey.com. Again, you can spell whiskey K-E-Y or with K-Y at the end. You can also go to leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey and you can go on Jamie's webpage. Yep. You can go to jflinch.com uh, slash leanwhiskey. And you can look for us and you can subscribe, of course, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify are probably the four main places. Absolutely. And, and we, we really do appreciate, you know, rate, rate us, review us, subscribe to us. Um, you know, it's, it's not a, just about ego. It's, it really is helping other people find uh, the podcast. And so the, those, those simple tasks uh, really do help other people. And so we appreciate any effort made on, the, on that front. Yay. I just looked on Apple Podcasts. We have uh, four ratings and they're all 5.0 ratings. So 
Excellent. I was going to say, it's am, not, it's am I all four of those? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I was going to say it's not about ego, but you were probably more correct when you said it's not just about ego. It's not just about ego. We, we, we do appreciate, I've gotten lots of comments, uh, you yeah. know, in, in my travels and, and people seem to appreciate and enjoy this, uh, the, all the aspects of it. And so it, it, it it's good to know people do listen and, and we appreciate everyone's, yeah, everyone's feedback. We really do. And, um, I don't know what else to say. Thank you, Jamie. Um, you have you have a final sip to. I, I I have I have about two more sips, but I can glass. make it one. So we appreciate everyone. Uh, best wishes to you and and cheers. Cheers. I'm gonna. Oh, that was more of a clunk than a clink. That's better. <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Thank you.